for centuries. They have been trying to keep us where they want us. Why do demons disappear when you die? And yet humans leave these nasty skeletons behind. We pull our children back. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's season one, episode six, The Demon Cages. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Dan Coyce, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. I'm Laura Miller, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki. Picking up right where the last episode left off, episode six takes place almost entirely in Bolvanger and covers nearly 100 pages of the Golden Compass, a ways into part three of the novel. Lyra sees firsthand what they're up to at Bolvanger, as she is nearly separated from Pan by their big metal guillotine, but Mrs. Coulter grabs her at the last minute and saves her. The Egyptians raid the station. Serafina Pecola kills everyone. Lyra and the children are rescued, and Lee takes Lyra, Roger, and Yorick up in his balloon, off to find Lord Asriel. This episode is truly all about the diabolical process cooked up by the scientists at Bolvanger, and so this episode we're going to go deeper into intercision. How does it work? Why is it so horrible for people? Does the series do justice to just how terrible it is? And why does the Magisterium and Mrs. Coulter want to do it? And now a warning about spoilers. We don't plan to spoil the books or the series, but we do talk about the universe where the books take place. So if you're extremely spoiler sensitive, you might not want to listen to this. Or read the books. As always, if you've got questions about His Dark Materials or responses to our show, drop us an email at asktheauthority@slate.com, Or you can find us on Twitter at Dan Coyce for me, at Magician's Book for Laura. Here's an email we received this week from listener Ashley. Ashley writes, I've never really understood why the book series has been labeled as young adult. Just because Lyra is a child shouldn't mean the books are automatically in the kids lit category, right? I'm curious to know how you feel about the designation of the books in relation to how the TV show is marketed. Is the TV show also for young adults, or do you think it has been made for an adult audience? Have you seen choices made by the producers that keep the story intended for a young adult or a more broad audience? Laura, what do you think? I mean, to start with, the books are young adult because the publisher published them as young adult, right? Well, yes. And I think actually technically they're what we call middle grade or MG. Young adult is a slightly slightly different genre. It's <laughs> kind of hard to, to really define the differences between them. I mean, I think it probably starts out as more of a middle grade series and ends up as more of a of a young adult series because the main thing that young adult novels tend to have is some kind of aspect of sexuality. Um, but I think it's important to also remember that Philip Pullman wrote these books. He was a children's book author, and he wrote them as children's books for the children's book imprint um, of Oxford University Press. Um, and they were always conceived of that way. And I don't think that he sees them as being lesser for the, for that. I mean, in fact, there's a, there's a f- famous quote by him where he said, there are some themes, some subjects too large for adult fiction. They can only be dealt with adequately in a children's book. So I don't really think that he really cares that much. I mean, I think he's happy to see himself as writing for children. He, is very interested in children. He taught children of about the same age as Lyra for, for many years when he was a school teacher and has written for them for many years as well. 
And I think he also doesn't see that there's any reason why adults wouldn't want to read books that were originally written for that audience. So I, I don't think he thinks that that distinction is hugely significant. The books came out in a time that I think of as, as very early in the era of children's books crossing over to adult audiences. And I think of this series, especially in Britain, but to some extent in the United States, as one of the first series, along with Harry Potter, that truly did cross over, where it wasn't just kids reading it, but adults started adopting and becoming interested in that series. In fact, the third book in the series uh, won the Whitbread Book of the Year prize in England, a very prestigious prize that has had never been given to a, a quote-unquote children's book ever before. And that was in large part, I think, because of the substantial adult readership that those books had acquired. But that didn't stop the publisher from publishing them as children's books and targeting that market. Now, the HBO series is a little bit of a, a weird bird, I think, because it's hard to market a series with a kid at the middle of it and not have it look like something for kids. It's hard to have an adventure where a kid is running around like riding on a fucking polar bear and stuff and not have it look like something for kids. But the series itself seems to me very clearly made with adults in mind. I think amplifying Mrs. Coulter as a character, I think amplifying Lee Scoresby and casting Lin-Manuel Miranda as that character are both choices you make if you really want this series to be interesting to and appeal to Adults, which isn't to say the kids don't also like it. My kids like it. But HBO and the BBC, who originally produced this, seem very interested in giving this as broad an audience as possible. And the aesthetic choices that Jack Thorne and everyone else involved in it have made seem very inclined in that direction to me. I also think that um, television is much more segregated age-wise than books are, than than fiction is, let's say. Um, I, you know, there's not that many kids' shows that adults watch unless they're stoned. Or stuck with kids at, at yeah. 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it definitely is the case that if you feel like a show is targeted at teenagers, I, as an adult, think I'm not going to be very interested in that. So it, it may be like they, they had to pick a side to to quote Mrs. Coulter, and they just decided <laughs> that they were going to make an adult series f with a child at the center of it, which is an unusual choice. I mean, as to the question of whether they have changed things or they've made adaptations that, that seem to be gearing the series towards a younger audience, I, I don't necessarily think that. But, you know, the truth is that what the average television producer thinks of the mentality of the average television viewer is probably not that different from what many of us think of as the mentality of the average child. <laughs> Laura, it's the BBC? Come on. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you can clearly see there have been efforts made to either simplify the storyline or kind of bring a sort of tricky ideas to, you know, to sort of more familiar motifs like changes to the scene that we talked about in the last episode with Lyra and the demonless boy, the focus being on the grief of Macosta and the Egyptians rather than the complex interaction between Lyra and the adults who are sort of recoiling from this boy because of his his sort of mutilated state. So, um, yeah, I mean, I do think that they may be dumbing it down at certain points, but I don't think that they're necessarily doing that 
because they think it's a kid's show. No, they're doing that for the adults who they want to watch this and not be turned off by those big questions that Philip Pullman thinks you can only answer with a children's book. Exactly. So let's discuss this episode and what happens in it. We are in Bullvanger for almost the entire episode. At the beginning, Lyra gets taken to a cafeteria where she sees Roger. They immediately lock eyes, and there's this really nice moment where Pan sneaks over to Roger's demon, and they whisper to each other, and he's like, Cecilia, are you in the right headspace to receive information that could possibly hurt you? And they work out that Lyra is going to be Lizzie. She is Lizzie. She's pretending to be a different kid. She doesn't want them to know who she really is. A nervous doctor takes Lyra Lizzie's photo, and she asks him if he's looking for dust in those photos. What are you looking for? We'll take those pictures again, just to be safe. What are you taking pictures of? You're measuring dust, aren't you? Can you see dust in these pictures? Who told you about dust? One of the other girls. No, they didn't. Where are you from? And you see, doctor, the thing is that I wash regularly. You won't find any dust on me. Well, it's perhaps a little more complicated than you might think. There's a fire drill, and Lyra starts a snowball fight out there in the yard. Then she and Roger steal away in search of a way out. And then they find a room. And in the room are cages. And in the cages are... Stop! Gilda. Please, Dan. Gilda. We need to include it. It's an important part of the show. It's awful. Oh, Saki, it's okay. It's just a story. I hate it. I wish we'd never watched it. Me too. Look, the fact that our demons don't want to hear this at all, well, you know just how awful it is to see. The cages are filled with demons. The lost demons of the children who have been severed, who have undergone intercision. There's an empty cage where Billy Costa's demon ratter used to be. So let's take a closer look at intercision and what it truly means. Saki, I don't like it any more than you, but we need to talk about it on the show. I'm going into the next room. Me too. You're being a baby, Gilda. I thought you were settled. Fuck off. Okay. Intercision is the process of severing the link between a person and a demon. It's the great evil of this first book. It's the horror that Lyra confronts in Bolvanger, and it's unspeakably frightening and disgusting to the people of Lyra's world. Laura, can you walk us through how intercision works and how can a psychic link between two creatures be cut by a physical object like a blade? Well, we've already seen how the alethiometer, by being made as a sort of alloy between two rare metals, can somehow communicate or channel or speak for some force that is obviously more than its simple mechanical parts. And in this case, this blade that's part of this machinery is also made of some special kind of metal that is capable of severing this connection. Um, this gives us a strong sense that, that the connection between the demon and the human is something similar to the force that operates the alethiometer. Because it requires an alloy to sort of make or sever that connection. There's some connection between then those two forces. Yeah, it seems like it might be supernatural in the same way that the alethiometer seems like it might be supernatural and the demons themselves seem like they might be supernatural. But there is this sense that this 
aspect of Elira's world can be interacted with via what we would call science, what they call experimental theology, but what we would call science. So you put a demon in one box made of this alloy and you put a kid or person in the another box uh, made of this alloy and then a blade made of the same alloy comes down and in that instant this link between the two creatures is cut. But the two creatures still exist. The demon still exists physically. We know that because of those demons in those cages. The child still exists. We know that because we see those children in that room with their heads shaved. But the connection between them is cut somehow. And there has been some sign of what that means, of what it means to take away the connection between a person and their demon already in in these books and in this series. There is, for example, very early in the books, Lyra's experience with those skeletons in the Jordan College crypts. She and Roger are, uh, are playing in the crypts down below Jordan College. She finds a couple of skeleton skulls, and each one has a coin in its mouth, and each coin has a demon carved into it. And they're symbols of the demons that those scholars had in life. And as a prank, Lyra moves some of them around, um, and Roger is aghast that she does that. And it seems at first like a totally harmless prank, but in a very vivid scene, Lyra is visited that night by nightmares or ghosts, night ghasts, she calls them, uh, of those scholars furious at her for having taken away that connection with their demons, even in death. And the next day she sneaks back down to the crypt and she replaces the coins and she says, sorry, sorry to the skulls. And of course, there's this – we know that if demons get too far away physically from their humans, um, the, the death can result, that there's pain and that there's death that can be a result of that. But there is also in this world a difference between simply being separated from your demon and undergoing intercision. Separation is something that some people – can master with their demons. We know that Mrs. Coulter and her monkey, for example, can be further away from each other than a normal person and their demon can. We we have seen, thanks uh, to Serafina Pecola's witch, the, the this Arctic bird, that witches and their demons can range miles and miles away from each other to do that. In order to undergo that, they have to they have to undergo this kind of coming of age ceremony, uh, a, a, an ordeal that all witches must go through, in which they are separated from their demons as they wander through a wasteland in the far north. And so that's different from intercision, in which you actually are cutting this emotional link that every person in Lyra's world views as like the core connection in their life and so important and valuable to them, it seems to me. So, Laura, why is the magisterium doing this? What does the magisterium want out of this process? Why are they doing these experiments? Well, yes. I mean, I, I always think of how the the uh, witches and Mrs. Coulter separate from their demons is that that bond is there, but they've learned how to stretch it much further than most people can. So there's just this like tiny filament, but they're still connected. Um, in the books, there are adults. For example, there's a that a terrifyingly sweet sort of lollipop-faced nurse character in the series who is about 4,000 times more frightening than Mrs. Coulter, um, who's like the evil Mary Poppins. She has no demon. We, we, we learn in this episode that her demon has just been taken away from her. And when Lyra realizes this and says to her, you know, who was your demon? What was his name? It's like she kind of goes on the fritz, she like you know, shorts just out, to, yeah. yeah, 
to be reminded of this. But in the books, people like this who've undergone intercision have their demons with them, but the demons are described as sort of very neat. And this woman has like a little, I think it's a fox or a dog demon that is very neat and precise and controlled and very, very tame, which is a word that is not used in the books, but I think is what Pullman is trying to get at. Because Mrs. Coulter later explains to Lyra that instead of having this demon that is an extension of herself, she will still have her demon, but he will be like a lovely little pet, you know, but separate from her. And she, in the book, she has to pretend that um, this is an acceptable idea to her, whereas it fills her with outrage. And she realizes why some of the demons of the adults in Bolvanger seem uncanny and wrong and, and, and neat is the word used over and over again. There's something sort of tidy and contained about them. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that the magisterium thinks there's some connection between dust and what we would call sin, and that the connection between the demon and the child, once the child comes of age and the demon settles, attracts this. And they want, and they can somehow keep this person from ever having dust or sin attracted to them by eliminating this bond before the demon has the chance to settle. And it seems that what they get from this are subjects who are themselves tamed, docile, and controlled, that there's some connection between agency or free will and sin, which I think there obviously is. So the long-term goal of the magisterium, it seems like, is to essentially create an entire docile and subservient population that by virtue of having no free will will indeed you know, go out and sin no more because they're incapable of conceiving of it? Or do you think that this is always meant as a way to create sort of a certain select group of servants or workers who are docile while other people like Mrs. Coulter, for example, will never be subject to something like this. Well, it's really unclear because Mrs. Coulter obviously doesn't want this to happen to Lyra, but yet she thinks as Lyra challenges her on this, she says, well, if it's such a good thing, you should want them to do it to me. You should be glad that it's going to happen to me. And it's not really clear whether Mrs. Coulter thinks well, I do think it would be good when we've perfected the process and there isn't this chance that you're going to die or become some kind of zombie, or whether it's that she actually values Lyra's independence and free will and doesn't want to see that destroyed, that she recognizes that you're essentially killing someone's spirit by, by doing this. I think one of the interesting things about this idea is that it's hard to tell the difference between what an authoritarian institution like the church or the magisterium claims to be doing to protect people and what it might actually be doing to control them, like whether that institution sees any difference between those things. Would it, this, for example, turn all adults into children so that they'll be the children of the church and the church will be people's parents? And, and you know, it's it's just really unclear. I think Mrs. Coulter actually believes that you can preserve innocence in this way. But it also seems like she is extremely controlling, and she can't really tell the difference between 
innocence and subservience. And it's all mixed up for her and her life, too. Like, it's clear that she obviously values her own free will and her own agency, yet she clearly uses sexuality in some ways in her in her interactions with people. Uh, she uses the power of that. But she also talks about the grief and damage that the result of her own, quote unquote, sin did to her life, right? The affair that she had with uh, Lord Asriel, which she says almost ruined her for some time. And so it's very mixed up for her as well what these things do to you. And so I'm very curious as to whether she thinks it's clear that she doesn't want this for herself, but is there some part of her that thinks if this had been done to me once, I would be a different person, but would I in some way be a, a more satisfactory person? It's not, it's not totally clear to me. Yeah, her love for Lyra is forcing this question on her because it's it's not possible to sever a demon from an adult person. It's just too late. And she may have been going on this course. Well, but it's not believing. wait, wait, but it's not too late, is it? Because that's what happened to those nurses. It turns I mean you turn no, them but into I think like, that happened that it happened when they were younger. Oh, I don't think that's true, actually. I think that those are I'm not sure that it's made clear in the text, but I think that they were severed as adults and made blank. But you think that they are kids who were once in there and have grown up to be adult employees of the place. My impression is that they were they are the survivors of the earlier experiments. Oh. Because if they could do it to adults, why wouldn't they be doing it to adults? I mean, they, she literally says it's too late for, for the adults once hmm. – you know, once they their demons settle, dust is attracted to them, and then it's too late. That's very interesting. Listeners, write into us and tell us which one of us is right. All right. So, where else does this appear in the in the his dark materials world or worlds as we know about it? Um, in the books, for example, one researcher in Bolvanger says Scraylings did it better when he's talking about how difficult it is to do this process without just killing everyone while you do it, which is a suggestion that this world's version of the Inuit people, the Scraylings, once performed this operation in some way. And there's other examples from these worlds. Uh, Lord Azrael mentions Castrati, who seem to have had the same role in the medieval or Renaissance church here in Lyra's world as they did in ours. Tony Costa tells Lyra about breathless ones, these legendary monsters of the north who are people who have had their lungs pulled out of their bodies through their ribs, and they must walk around halfway between life and death uh, through the through the woods with their demons forever pumping their lungs or else they'll die. And then there's zombies uh, who are referred to uh, as being from Africa in, in, in these stories who have no will of their own, who just work all day and all night without complaining, who it's, who it's made explicit are people who've had their, who've been severed from their demons. I don't know if it happened as adults or if it happened as children, but it's explicit that that, that happened to them. Are there, coming-of-age ceremonies in our world that this resembles? Well, I mean, with castration, you have boys or young men who have their testicles removed because that will give them these very high soprano voices or they can keep the, the, the high voices of their boyhood as singers or they can work as eunuchs in certain situations where for one reason or another – a man with fully operational genitals shouldn't be there, like in a harem or something. 
So, and then there's also female genital mutilation practiced by some tribal cultures. And these are all examples of societies where certain people are deemed to to be used by others. You know, like we need these angelic voices or we need a, a man who can work in the harem but who won't be a sexual threat to the owner of the harem. I mean, these are all kind of class-based things. So maybe maybe the magisterium is trying to create a class of basically psychic castrati. I mean, another possible similarity is lobotomy, yeah, which yeah. was performed on, you know, people who had various kinds of mental illness or emotional disturbances theoretically for their own good, but possibly just to make them more docile in the institutions where they were sort of relegated to live. But that's not the same as somebody being mutilated in some fundamental way because you want them to basically serve other people. There is a real connection, though, I think, between the way that lobotomy or shock treatment, for example, was sometimes used on people who who weren't necessarily suffering from any particular mental illness, but who were just troublesome or inexplicable in some way. Uh, and that happened in some societies and wealthy families that that like the answer for a person who had in some way too much free will expressed in some kind of societally inappropriate manner was to do this thing to them that was meant simply to like manage them. Yes. And they all seem tied together in some way. And and the version that Philip Pullman has created is unique to his world, but bears a resemblance to all of these means of control. And I think you're right that control is the is the most important thing, that the church can say all it wants to say about wanting to, to protect these children from the dangers of sin, but – they would not be willing to do it to their own children, as Mrs. Coulter is not willing to do it to Lyra. And it just so happens that the people they do do it to end up serving some role inside the church or for the benefit of the church that they wouldn't have other people do. And in fact, we'll see this later in the books, perhaps also later in the series. Uh, not only if your belief is correct, Laura, about the nurses at Bullvanger, but about other people who are used by other characters in certain ways after they've had some version of this procedure. All right, so let's talk about that room full of demons that Lyra and Roger end up in um, and how it's portrayed in the show versus how it's portrayed in the book. I'm sorry that our demons got so upset, but in a, in a way, it's good that that you listeners heard that because this idea of demons cut from their humans I think should be that upsetting to anyone, to anyone who sees that. That's certainly how upsetting it is in the book. And I'd like to read a little passage from the book when Lyra finds these demons in the cages um, and, and just how awful and piteous these demons are. In the book, she's actually witnessing the demon cages with Serafina Pekla's demon, Cassia. In a series of glass cases on shelves around the walls were all the demons of the severed children. Ghost-like forms of cats or birds or rats or other creatures, each bewildered and frightened and as pale as smoke. The witch's demon gave a cry of anger, and Lyra clutched Pantalaemon to her and said, Don't look! Don't look! Where are the children of these demons? said the goose demon, shaking with rage. 
Lyra looked over her shoulder at the poor caged demons who were clustering forward, pressing their pale faces to the glass. Lyra could hear faint cries of pain and misery. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a bit about how how much difficulty the series has in conveying the bond between the demon and the human. And this scene that you've just read really brings up one of the the issues that I think is making it hard for them to make the point, which is that when Lyra wants comfort or, you know, she's shocked by this sight of these severed demons, she picks up Pan and she holds him close. In many, many instances in the books, when Lyra needs to comfort herself, which is this famous thing that a child needs to learn how to do in order to fall asleep at night and deal with all different kinds of of, uh, trials and setbacks. It's like a stage of human development, knowing how to comfort yourself. She kind of cuddles Pan. She holds him close. And I think one of the reasons why the demons in the series were not getting the sense of how close the demons and the humans are is because they almost never, the people are almost never holding the demons or interacting with them in this way that that Lyra just turns to just instinctively when she's shocked or frightened, you know, she she holds Pan close and she sort of cuddles him. Or he'll even and, sometimes and, go inside her clothes and like that skin to skin contact is crucial for yes. them at moments of high stressors or frightening. Well, we sometimes see, like, especially Lord Boreal's snake demon coming out of his clothes, but that's more just creepy or uncanny. Mm -hmm. The sort of physicality of the human-demon relationship is sort of missing in this series. And I think there's a link there with how people feel about their beloved pets, you know, and like so much of that relationship is about the physicality of holding or petting or sleeping with, um, with these animals. And in the series, they're always sort of separate from the human beings, I assume for reasons of, of the difficulty of doing a sort of special effect of somebody holding like a, a little ermine that doesn't actually exist. It's much harder than to just put the ermine like next to her on a windowsill. So I think that consistently the series has a really hard time getting across the primal nature of that bond. It's such a simple thing to show, but you're absolutely right that the only two instances I can think of in the series of a demon touching a person are Lord Boreal's snake coming out of his sleeve and that one fucking magisterium guy whose beetle crawled on his face. So it's, it's I can only remember it being used for like a creep factor, not yeah. for what it actually probably is, which is and, – and, and in the books – Demons, even of the most despicable characters, care deeply for their humans with one or two exceptions, which are notable in the canon of these books. And at moments of high stress, will fly to them and comfort them and love them and cuddle them as a way of helping them feel better. And this happens, you know, to the to the worst killer, to the best character, that bond remains part of being a human being, no matter how broken you are in some other way, in almost every single case. 
And so the fact that for whatever reason, maybe just for reasons of cost, maybe it's an aesthetic decision that we haven't, that I don't understand, that we haven't seen the payoff for, but you're right that we very rarely see that. And there's one instance in this episode that I'm going to talk about in a bit where it was glaring that we didn't see that. Yeah, I, you know, Pullman has a chance through the whole book to build up the reader's belief in the importance of this bond. We, we don't just see the pain suffered or the devastation when the bond is broken with um, Tony Macarius um, just sort of fading away without his radar, but we see just all of those occasions where Lyra holds Pan to her, or Pan rushes to Lyra, or, um, or you know, well, we we do in the series. We do sometimes see the the demons fight with each other because that's obviously easier to produce for whatever reason. But we don't really get to see them as a comfort. He's he's more of like a sidekick, and there there's just that quality that quality of touch that's that's missing. Later in the episode, Lyra gets taken by those same researchers um, and placed in the machine herself. Uh, This is right before the moment where she's hoping that all the kids will be able to escape and she is uh, overcome with despair when this happens. So here I missed the sort of horrible, brutal fight that Lyra and Pan put up where Pan, while the researchers are trying to hold on to him, he changes. He like flickers from animal to animal, lion to eagle to bear to try and fight them off. And the researchers, demons join in the fight and Lyra shouts, why are you doing this to them? But it was still, even in the series, even without that, it was still pretty horrifying and pretty well done and a moment of real fright. Uh, And Mrs. Coulter's arrival is spectacular, I think. Her walking through that door because Ruth Wilson is spectacular. And that moment of her shutting down the machines and realizing who's in that box is pretty astonishing. And one of the advantages that the series has is it just shows us a child trapped in a metal box with like a giant blade about to come down. I mean, here's an instance where the visual aspect of the series gives it greater power. And so then... Mrs. Coulter is completely shocked and she rushes in and she frees Lyra from the machine. But then came the moment that drove me the most crazy of anything I've seen on this show yet. And it's a moment that I'm like truly worried the show cannot recover from for me. We'll see in episode seven or eight because it is so little, but it's so important and it speaks exactly to what you were talking about, Laura. So Lyra and Pan are released from their cages and in the book, they are crazy with fear and This is what happens. The golden monkey darted from her side in a flash and tugged Pantalaemon out from the mesh cage as Lyra fell out herself. Pantalaemon pulled free of the monkey's paws and stumbled to Lyra's arms. Never, never, she breathed into his fur, and he pressed his beating heart to hers. They clung together like survivors of a shipwreck, shivering on desolate coast. And in the show... Lyra is freed from her cage and... She doesn't even look at Pan. She steps forward and stares at Mrs. Coulter. It made us so angry. So now Mrs. Coulter knows that Lyra knows that she is Mrs. Coulter's daughter and takes her away to this little room and gives her chamomile tea and basically tries to explain the rationale of the gobblers to her and why intercision is a good thing and needs to be done just not to her. 
Lyra, dear, I believe the master of Jordan College gave you something before you left his care. Isn't that right? And Ethiometer? The trouble is, I believe the only reason he gave it to you is because he wanted it to fall into Lord Asriel's hands. And if there's one thing that man doesn't need, it's more toys to do damage with. I know he told you not to tell me about it. And I know you're not the sort to break your word. And in the book, this is I, the, the Mrs. Coulter of the book is more frightening because she's sort of less human-seeming. And Lyra, like a character in a sort of fairy tale, is is suddenly realizing that this beautiful, charming person is really just the, a wicked witch, and she can't believe she was so um, foolish as to be taken with her. But... I, don't, I think that's what's happening in this scene is that the thing that is tripping Mrs. Coulter up is her own strong maternal feelings. She explains to Lyra that um, she didn't keep her because it wasn't really possible and Asriel thought he had better ideas for how uh, Lyra should be provided for and she sort of went along with it. But the impression that I get from this performance is that she just really didn't understand how important Lyra was to her until she actually set eyes on her. And everything she's doing since then is – she's kind of backfooted because she, she just wasn't prepared for the emotions that she has about this child. And it doesn't really fit into her plan very well. And there is an element of her relationship to Lyra that is about the sort of power games that she plays, the power amalgamation and the scheming. Because when she asks uh, Fra Pavel to ask the lithiometer, who is Lyra Belacqua, that's not about her relationship to Lyra. That's about whatever it is that Lyra's destiny is. And um, there's a way that Mrs. Coulter has a plan for that, but she doesn't have a plan for her own feelings. Wow, that's interesting. Right. She, it's In many ways, it seems like ever since that affair with Lord Asriel, she's consistently made a point of not making a way for her own feelings about anything, right? She has shut that down to some extent to attain the power that she's attained. And so a blindsided Mrs. Coulter who doesn't know what to do about feeling maternal about this person she previously had dismissed from her life is, to the show's credit, a, a much more dramatically interesting and fun choice than just this Wicked Witch character that, that she basically is in the books. Yes. So Lyra escapes from Mrs. Coulter with the help of that spy fly that she had socked away a couple of episodes ago. She hits the fire alarm. She assembles all the kids and she starts looking for an exit. And then all hell breaks loose. We've got Tartars with guns. We've got Yorick knocking heads. We've got Lee shooting guys. And then we've got Makasta taking that one doctor, the one doctor who's sort of worried about stuff and uh, and just cracking his neck and doing that neck snapping thing that, as far as I know, only happens on TV shows. It is not a way that any actual person would ever kill another actual person because it would take both superhuman strength and a, a genius level, like a dancer level mastery of uh, leverage. Tell me, do you remember Billy Costa? It wasn't my fault. I was just obeying orders. He was only a boy. 
We've come to rescue you. Come on, girls. We aren't here to hurt you. You're safe. But that's how she does it. She just kills that guy. Um, but right before she kills him, he says, I, I was only following orders. And between that and like and the shaved heads on all those kids who've been severed, who who Roger goes to try and help, I'm getting like a real concentration camp vibe off this. Do you think that's intentional off part of this show? Uh, yeah, I think it it obviously is. I mean, the um the female head doctor has a complete Lottie Lenya thing going on. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, I think she's. We're meant to see her as sort of Ilsa, she Wolf of the SS type character. Yeah, you know, they, it's it, this this camp is socked away somewhere where no one can interfere with them, and it's full of euphemisms and 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 the children are being pacified in these various ways. I mean, one of the things that I love that they've kept from the book is the way that Lyra uses the kidness of kids, like she reawakens it in these kids right. with the snowball fight, as a as a kind of weapon, you know, that there's this unruliness about children. And these children have been cowed, but all it takes is like her ringleader energy to just sort of say, you know, let's do this. We're going to have a mind. We're going to do this. I mean, she, she finds the other, the girl who's sort of the alpha girl uh, of the camp, Annie, but there's a great scene in the book where they're sort of like they're butting heads a little bit and then like Pan establishes dominance over <laughs> Annie's demon and then it's it's settled that Lyra is the ringleader of the the group of kids, which is something that happens in real life all the time. But in Lyra's world, the demons actually enact it. But you know, that she uses the inherent chaos of children as a weapon against Bolvanger and it's sort of regimented, oppressive order. Right. A place that's designed to destroy that. Um, just can't cope with it when that weapon is wielded against it. It's It's been built on the assumption that the kids will all obey. Um, and when they don't, when they start acting like kids, when they start exhibiting free will in the way that kids do, uh, all the systems start breaking apart. And I also like that a lot. Roger gets all those kids to follow him out the door. The kids who've been severed, they shuffle along after him. Uh, and in the middle of this battle, this pitched battle in a courtyard, uh, all of a sudden, Serafina Pecola just shows up and she like swishes around like a Death Eater and she just kills everyone in like two seconds. She is scary as hell. Uh, I know that we are supposed to view her as uh, like <laughs> this great hero showing up, but she actually, I found her terrifying how she just like locked <laughs> eye contact on Lyra and then fucking killed everyone. Uh, all right. Yeah. But so where does this leave us? Well, we have Lord Boreal's henchman back in our world, getting ready to break into Will's house. And um, we have this sort of kind of confusingly handled scene where Lyra and Roger and, and Yorick kind of pile into Lee's airship and head off to Svalbard. Um, in the in the book, they're actually in the middle of some kind of, or Mrs. Coulter is about to recapture Lyra, and then they all sort of jump in Lee's airship to get away. But in this, it's like they all get in and they go off on this mission, and only later when they've traveled for a while is Lee's 
Gorsby suddenly saying, what's in it for me? Whereas he seems to have already agreed to do it. I found that the whole logic of that really confusing. Like, why did he sort of say, hey, let's go off to Svalbard. Come on, everybody jump on board. And then they all head out. And then only later he's like, well, why am I doing this? <laughs> and asking uh, Serafina Pekula if he's ever going to get paid. She convinces him, I guess. Uh, just to do this job for exposure, like a freelance writer or something. <laughs> um, then they uh, they get attacked by cliff gasts, and Lee shoots one of them, and Lyra falls out of the balloon, and then it cuts to black. It's a real cliff gassed hanger. Uh, Laura, what uh, did you think of this episode overall? I I felt that I mean, in some parts it was great. I thought that the bullvanger was appropriately scary. I really loved that nurse character. She's she was so terrifying. And, you know, when she mentions Nicholas, her her demon, and she is kind of immobilized, I thought that was sort of weirdly poignant because I don't know, I find her absolutely frightening as a character, more so than Serafina. <laughs> but I also felt like the you know, the show is still struggling to make the demon human connection as emotionally important for the audience as it is for the characters because of the limitations of the storytelling choices they've made or perhaps the limitations of the special effects budget. So I didn't feel like that landed as well as it could have. I mean, it just, there was the emotional impact of Lyra being in some kind of horrible machine, which is just awful. And then the sort of zombie kids. So we know it's bad, but we don't really feel the particular way that it's bad given the human demon relationship. And then I do think that that was it was a little confusing about Lee's motivations, you know, like it, it almost seems like the end of the Wizard of Oz when they're all just ah. sort of jumping into the balloon and then they're heading back to Kansas. And it, it has this kind of like, yay, we killed the big bad or we, you know, we accomplished our mission. And then and suddenly he has all these doubts about it. I never have loved all of the talk about Lyra's destiny either, but I do really like the Serafina Pekla character. And I, I do like her, her look and the way that she's represented. And, you know, the witches are just a fabulous element of Pullman's universe. And so I was really happy that we got to see more of them in this episode. And I love the cliff guests which I always think might be borrowed from H.P. Lovecraft, but I'm not sure. But they're a wonderful beast, a monster that is just really fun. I like the idea of them just living in these these caves in this cliff and jumping out at whatever happens to come by. They're so nasty looking. They do seem Lovecraftian. Yeah, that's, uh, that is absolutely correct. Yeah, I think I mean, I think I'm basically in agreement. This was an episode where it's like the, the central thing that matters most to me is the thing the episode did worst with, but almost all the other things surrounding it were actually pretty great. Like Bullvanger was scary and Lyra Rousting the kids was super fun and the doctors were creepy and that nurse, you're correct, is horrifying. I like the addition of a doctor who's like feeling a little nervous about stuff but keeps doing it anyway and then gets killed because he's honestly just as bad as all the rest of them, maybe worse. And and I like the fight like that that was like a rousing, fun battle at the end uh, where we got to see everyone get theirs and including Lada Lenya. So the overall effect on me, despite our deep disappointment with that one scene that we talked about is, is, oh, this is a pretty good episode that like leaves me in an interested place. I agree with you that I, I worry if you are not a reader of the books, do you even get that they're going to Svalbard to, to get Lord Asriel 
and he's there being held by a bear. Like, is that clear? I don't know. If you're not, that's what's happening. They're going to Svalbard because that's where Lord Azrael is. And they're I think it's get pretty clear. Right. I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we'll hopefully see that in episode seven, the fight to the death. That'll be our next show. Hell yeah. I'm ready for a fight to the death. So join us for that. On Twitter, I'm at Dan Coyce, and Laura is at Magician's Book, or you can drop us a line at asktheauthority at slate.com. Our producer is Phil Circus, engineering assistants from Rosemary Belson and Merritt Jacob. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm Gilda. I'm Laura Miller. I'm Saki. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all. Until next week, 